Please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. It's a privilege to be with you all again. I might get carried away today, but at the same time, I guarantee you, I will not be, I'll not keep you here longer than the Isner-Anderson tennis match at Wimbledon. Longest match in the history of Wimbledon, six hours and 30 minutes, I think. You won't be here that long. so It's our privilege to be reading the very Word of God. It is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant. Out of our respect for the author of Scripture, please stand for the reading of his Word this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Father God, give us great wisdom that we might understand the text that we might understand the words that you inspired Paul to write here. And, and Father, equip us. We might be faithful. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now as we get into this text, a couple of things to set the context. It's always important when you study the Word of God that you study it within its context. You can't just rip it out and, and uh, let it say what you want it to say. So uh, as we look at this, please understand this is in the midst of Paul talking about how to live our Christian life. So he's in a very practical section uh, in the New Testament. But you have to understand that Practical points are based upon theological principles. In other words, doctrine and practice come together. You can't just say, oh, just give me practical points. Let me know what it means to be a Christian. Well, if you haven't given me the doctrinal foundation, these practical points mean nothing. And there's no way that they can be carried out. And, and again, if you focus on that, it's very scary because you can move into a works righteousness where we are earning our way into heaven. And uh, uh, boy, that's a terrible heresy. And yet we see that happening in the church through the ages. And, and all of a sudden, good people are on their way to heaven. But uh, as we understand what David wrote and as we understand what Paul wrote in Romans, we're not good. So just... Forget about that. We can't earn our way to heaven. Okay? Paul gives us doctrine, and then he tells us how to live it out because of that doctrine. For example, you flip back to chapter 1 in the book of Colossians, which gives us the theme for the book, which is in essence Paul talking about Christ's lordship over all of life, over everything. Uh, he gives eight statements concerning Paul in verses 15 through 18. And five of those statements, the first five, 
all deal with Christ's relationship with creation. And then almost like an afterthought, it deals with Christ as his as lordship over the church. So what Paul is telling us as he sums it up in, at, uh, in, uh, in verse 18, where he says, so that in all things he would be preeminent. All things. Christ is Lord, brothers and sisters, over every day of every week. The kids like to say 24-7. And he's Lord over all of that. Jay Adams used to talk about not just Monday through Saturday, you see. Well, Christ can have Sunday, that's all right. No, Scripture tells us he has all seven days, Sunday through Saturday. Christ is Lord preeminent over all things. That's the theme of this book. So that as we live our lives out, as we get into the practical points, we understand that we're serving our King. We're serving the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, over all of life, Sunday through Saturday, my calling, my recreation, whatever is under His Lordship, And it's critical to understand when you get into the book of Colossians. Christ is king. Therefore, the ruler is commanding us how we're to live our lives. The second thing to keep in mind in terms of the context is when Paul begins to talk about the practical things. Chapter 2, verse 6. Paul writes, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, in other words, you've received him, he's your savior, he's your king over every aspect of your life, so walk in him, Paul says. And the idea of walk has nothing to do with how I put my left foot in front of my right. When Paul uses the word walk, he's talking about the living of your daily life. Everything that you do is lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So walk in Him. So as you're taking step by step, you're always under His Lordship. You're living your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, everything we do, brothers and sisters, you can't separate anything from this one who is Lord over all of life. And then Paul goes through some theological points of application, and that brings us to where we are in chapter 3. Now, because Christ is Lord of all things, and because I'm now a believer, and I'm walking in that relationship, I'm living out that relationship, I'm told by Paul, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. So as a believer, Paul's telling me to focus not upon these things, but to focus on that which is is above. Now, as we get into these terms, please understand both of them, seek the things that are above, set your minds, both of them are imperatives. What does that mean? 
is, is Paul asking us to do this? An imperative is a command. In other words, if I love the Lord Jesus Christ, these are the things that I'm going to be doing. This is where I, this is where I seek, this is where I set my mind uh, on the things above. It's a command, not a suggestion, not a request. So the Lord that we saw in verse 18 of chapter 1, who is king over all things, is telling us this is what you're to do. It's also a present tense verb, which means it's ongoing. It's not limited in its scope. In other words, for a certain time and now, oh, I can relax now and, man, I can focus on the things of the world. No, it's present tense. It's ongoing. Literally, from the time that the Lord converts us till the time that he calls us home. This is to be what I'm doing. And it's active tense, which means I'm the one that's to be living it out. And so Paul is commanding us, guys, this is the way you're to live your life. You're to seek the things that are above. You're to set your minds on those things above. Now, as we think about that, as a Christian then, the word seek implies the desires of my heart, the things that I yearn for, the things that, 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 that motivate me, so to speak. You see, uh, seek these things uh, that are above. And, and he goes on to say, where Christ is seated at the very right hand of God. So I'm focusing upon that one who is king. I'm reminded of the fact that he rules and reigns over all of creation, and I'm the one that is to serve him. I'm to be focusing upon those things. The idea of set my mind is, is the, the, the idea of where do my thoughts go? On things that are above. And it's the picture, see, of though we're on this journey on earth, our attention is to be where? We have to live here. And I've often thought, man, how, how neat it would have been if the Lord just zapped me out of here when he converted me. But guys, he didn't. He left us here for a purpose. But that purpose is defined by our focus. I'm to be focusing on the things of heaven. As Jesus Christ brings the Sermon of the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount to a close, remember he says, Seek ye, seek ye first the kingdom of God. So where's our mind supposed to be? Kingdom of God. Focusing upon Him and Him alone. Now, as we wrestle with that, you've heard the phrase, we are in the world, but we are not of. Now watch out for your prepositions. We have to live here, but we're not of here. We're in but not of. Philippians chapter 3, 
Paul talks about our citizenship is in heaven. Okay? Hebrews chapter 11, we're referred to as strangers, exiles. We're just passing through, seeking our heavenly home. Peter, in his first letter, refers to exiles, calls us exiles. We're not really citizens here. And he tells us that as we live during this exile, that we're to conduct ourselves with fear. Chapter 2, he calls us sojourners. We're exiles, brothers and sisters. We are not citizens of this world. God has placed us here for a reason. And that reason is to impact the world in which we live. But not, not by focusing upon the world, but focusing upon our Lord and seeking to be what He wants us to be in the midst of this life that we're living here. We're exiles. This isn't our home. Bill's in our home. Our home is heaven. And we're passing through until that day that he calls us home. What does this mean? Number one, the importance of a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Realizing that we are sinners, realizing that we cannot save ourselves, realizing we can never be good enough, realizing that only through the Lord Jesus Christ can we be saved. The description of that is so beautiful in the book of Ephesians when it talks about people who are dead that God gets a hold of and He changes their hearts and He opens, us, opens our minds and eyes to the beauty of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And He draws us to Himself. And within that personal relationship, I'm seeking to serve the Lord in every area of life. Remember, what did Colossians 1.18 say? He's preeminent over just the church. Brothers and sisters, no matter what's happening in this world, our God sovereignly reigns over it. And Christ is the King over it. He holds it all together as God's sovereign purpose is worked out. And we're living within the midst of that. In that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that everything that we do is done under His Lordship our actions as well as our reactions. You know, those times when we, we haven't planned ahead and all of a sudden, boom, we're confronted with something. Our desire should be that our entire lives, actions and reactions, seeking first His kingdom. Please understand as well, brothers and sisters, that that relationship with Jesus that it demands a distinctive lifestyle. 
Now, be careful what motivates us to live that distinctive lifestyle. John 14, 15. If you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. In other words, the motivation, and Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul tells us that uh, uh, it's the love of Christ that motivates me. It's the love of Christ that constrains me. So because of our love for Christ, it's the picture of not only do we have a king who rules over us, and we get to live under his lordship, but it's a king whom we love. And so so our service is being driven by this sense of agape, because that's the Greek word that's used here. The idea of sacrificial love. As we seek to serve him and him alone, we're motivated by the love that we have for him, who, by the way... In 1 John, we love because he loved us first. Thirdly, that life being lived under his lordship is based upon a knowledge of scripture. Please understand, how does God communicate with us? Is he going to give you a dream? Is he going to come and give you a message? You're going to open a fortune cookie after you've eaten at the Chinese restaurant and receive a message from God. How does he communicate with us? His word. So as we seek to live faithfully under his lordship, it is important that we spend time in his word. Not only are we encouraged by uh, what what, what scripture tells us in terms of God's faithfulness, and this was the beauty of what you have in the book of Habakkuk, by the way. As I mentioned, I would encourage you to read that. Here was a faithful prophet, and uh, uh, he's, he's really upset by all the different things that are going on around him in Jerusalem and Israel. It was bad time in the nation of Israel in terms of their relationship with the Lord. And so Habakkuk, being a godly man, comes and he says, Lord, how are you gonna? How much longer are you gonna allow this to happen? You're sovereign. Do something about it. And God's response is, Habakkuk, I, I am. I'm sending the Chaldeans to destroy Israel. Interesting concept there, brothers and sisters. Please understand, if God is sovereign, that means every aspect of His plan is under his control. Of course, Habakkuk's first response was basically, Lord, that's not the answer I wanted. And God comes to him, and that's when in, in chapter 2, as, we, uh, as I mentioned this morning with the call to worship, that in chapter 2, God's describing what he's going to do. He's sovereign. He's raising up the Chaldeans. They're going to be an instrument of judgment. But when I'm finished with the Chaldeans, hey, I'll take care of them too. So the beauty of his sovereignty over all things 
led us into that call of worship as we come into his holy temple to worship him. He's the sovereign God of the universe, you see. Habakkuk had to learn that. Well, we need to know the scripture so that we know it too. We need to know the scripture so that when God describes how we're to respond in the midst of what's going on around us, that we're doing what he wants us to do. We're to be salt. We're to be light. When you think about the picture that these two words give to us, the idea of salt is a preservative. That it was the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that was to keep a culture from self-destructing. And in many ways, when we look at what's happening in our country, you know, we point fingers at all these different places, brothers and sisters, those fingers point back at us because the church has not been what it was supposed to be. We need to be that agency of preserving, cleansing, salt, light, the picture of pointing people to Jesus in the midst of the darkness, you see. Scripture. Know your Scripture. Realize, number four, in reference to that, that we're to be disciplined. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 Beginning in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in these things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Using this example from athletics, the area of discipline, to discipline our body, to discipline ourselves in our use of time so that we basically control our days. Our days don't control us. If an athlete is so committed to receiving this perishable wreath. How much more should we be committed to self-discipline because we're in a race for an imperishable wreath? Now, I'm a, I'm a big lover of tennis, obviously, uh, in reference to the six-hour sum match that was played the other day, but five years from now, uh, unless you live and breathe tennis, nobody's going to remember who won what match. 20 years? Only your experts may. But that's, that's an imperishable, that's a perishable wreath. You see, if our minds are focused upon the things that are above, we want to pursue the things that are imperishable. Discipline. Chapter 5, Paul refers to discipline again when he's talking about the laziness of these folks to whom he's writing. He'd just been talking about Melchizedek, which is an interesting study 
and, and can be very challenging as we wrestle with uh, this unique character who all of a sudden appears and just as suddenly disappears in the life of Abraham. Uh, but Paul's talking about the uh, as a figure he pointed to Christ. But in reading Hebrews chapter 5 about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. Guys, you're lazy. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid you, 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 you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Discipline. Discipline yourself to read the word to study the word, and, and, and please understand when you when you look at the history of the church, in many ways, uh, the strength of the church is not always what's in the pulpit. Probably, uh, the, the strength of the church is the leadership of the people in the church, the elders, the deacons, the people in the pew. Because it's the people in the pew that hold the pulpit accountable. You've got to know the word. Remember, you're living under the lordship of Jesus Christ and you've been called to be something special in the service of that great king. You've got to know the word. A beautiful illustration with that in Ephesians. Paul talks about the, the, the Roman soldier getting his armor on. And you remember he goes through all the pieces of armor. And then he picks up the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. That's our weapon. When you look at the success of the Roman army. Now keep in mind Paul was writing within the midst of, of history. And what was the most powerful army in the world at that time? Roman army. And the key was the development of a short, two-edged sword. Sword was about this much in length, but it had a cutting edge on both sides, so that when the Roman army came into contact with the other army, you could swing that short sword quickly with great efficiency, rather than the long swords that you oftentimes had to weld with two hands. But they used that sword well. And it was effective. And that's what's in Paul's mind when he talks about that sword, the sword of the Spirit. Going back to Peter again, Peter writes, chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... Remember, guys, we're on a journey. We're just passing through. This isn't our home. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. The picture is... Our purpose here on this earth 
since we're not citizens here, our focus is in heaven, is to live out our lives in such a way that people would see Jesus. And seeing Jesus, that their lives would be impacted. That's why the Lord didn't take us home after He converted us. He converted us for the purpose of service. Service here. That people would see Him in our lives. Visualize your life as a cube. The top of it is focusing on Jesus. The bottom of it, the base, is grounded in the Word. The other four sides are being lived out before whom? Before the world. The reality of Jesus, brothers and sisters, is seen by all those with whom we come into contact. May they see Jesus. May they see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do marvel at your grace. The very fact that you have taken sinners dead in their sins and in their trespasses. And Father, you've made those sinners whole. And you've given us purpose, even as frail individuals and, uh, and even as those who sin. Father, you've given us a purpose. And that is because of our love for that one who loved us first. That we live our lives under his lordship. That his name would be exalted. That all of those around us, maybe it's the people we work with, maybe it's the people that live close to us. It might even be somebody that we meet just and, and we'll never see again. But oh, Father, because we're just passing through, may people see in us Jesus. And may their lives be changed, Father, because of the reality of Christ in our lives. And may all of it be for your glory and your glory alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.